Friends, welcome to Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Word on Fire is an apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization, using media both old and new to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. Today we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each of us. Peace be with you. Friends, one of the most important doctrines of the church is the doctrine of original sin. The teaching that holds that there is something fundamentally off about us, something that's just not right. We're off kilter, we're skewed, we're mixed up. We Catholics don't hold to a doctrine of total depravity, as though sin has just wrecked us spiritually. I mean, we think that mind and will are are intact as spiritual powers, but we do indeed hold, if you want the details, by the way, look at the Council of Trent, we do indeed hold that original sin has worked its way into every nook and cranny of our lives, into our minds, our wills, our desires, our passions, even into our very bodies. G.K. Chesterton argued, oh, a century ago now, that original sin is the only doctrine for which there is clear empirical evidence. See what he meant? We can feel it in ourselves, and we can see the effects of it everywhere. Watch the 10 o'clock news. If you want to see the effects of original sin, look inside your own psyche, your own soul. You'll see it. Read Paul to the Romans chapter 7 sometimes. And those famous words, the good that I would do, that's what I don't do. The evil that I would avoid, that's what I do. And we can all identify with that, can't we? Think of anyone that's wrestled with an addiction, and really all sin is a type of addiction. Those are the empirical marks, you might say, of original sin. Now, this is really important, I think. One of the enduring problems of humankind is precisely a denial of original sin and a consequent confidence in our ability to save ourselves. Now, I say it's it's an enduring problem because this is on display in classical thought. Read Aristotle and Plato and Cicero and those people. What you'll find are basically very sophisticated, but self-help programs. Plato's philosophy is is an articulation of how we can, you know, really perfect ourselves, save ourselves. They all notice, by the way, the old philosophers, there's something wrong with us. It's hard to miss that. But they feel that, you know, through the right education, the right moral uh, discipline and so on, we can save ourselves. Now, there's an ancient version of that. There's also a very modern version of it. Think of the myth of progress that came up out of the Enlightenment. You know, with enough economic and political uh, reform, we can solve our problems. We can save ourselves. There are psychological versions of it on display today, right? Just make these internal changes, shift your consciousness, etc., and you can be okay. 
But this is an enduring problem. Why? Because the minute we think we can save ourselves, we make everything worse. I've quoted, I think, many times before Pascal's great line, right? The one who would make himself an angel would make himself a beast. Celui qui fait l'ange fait la bête. The one who thinks he can become an angel, in fact, will become a beast. And notice, too, how indispensable this doctrine of original sin is to a healthy Christianity, because no original sin we can save ourselves, and if we can save ourselves, then we don't need a Savior. See, that's precisely why Jesus so often today devolves into a mere spiritual teacher. He becomes like a self-help guru. See, but that's not Christianity. So original sin is a pivotal, key doctrine of Christianity. Okay, all three of our readings this weekend explore different facets of this teaching, different profiles, I would say, of original sin. So look now from the Book of Wisdom. It's our passage in the first reading. We hear this psychologically and spiritually very rich remark. The wicked say, let us beset the just one because he is obnoxious to us. It's a great line. Let us sink in. The wicked say, let us beset the just one because he's obnoxious to us. Does that sound at all familiar? Think of maybe from the time you were a little kid that it was the, the good boy, the good girl that annoyed you. And why you wanted to undermine him or undermine her, let's beset the just one because he is obnoxious to us. See, if all were well with us, we would love the just one. We'd celebrate him. We'd savor him. He's, he's the right one. Therefore, one of the surest signs of our dysfunction is that we celebrate all the wrong people. And we tend to despise or look down upon the very best people. I mean, think of much of our culture today. Who are the people that we hold up for emulation, for adulation? Whom do we praise? I mean, it's very often the worst people. You know, morally speaking, maybe they have certain talents, but from a moral standpoint, the worst people we hold up. And whom do we despise? Whom do we ignore? Very often, the best people. Pay very close attention, by the way to the people you don't like. Pay attention to the people you consider obnoxious. It might tell you a lot about your own spiritual state. <laughs> so if you're really honest, in prayer, you know, you're really honest, who are the people that, that I don't like? And then ask, well, how come? Are they perhaps the just one that I find obnoxious? Now, look at the second reading, which gives us another aspect of this problem of original sin. It's from the wonderful letter of James. I recommend everybody, uh, you can read the whole thing easily in one sitting. Take out your Bibles and find the letter of James. It's one of the most penetrating essays on the moral life found anywhere in Scripture. It's a kind of exhortation, a sort of sermon or a homily that this ancient uh, figure wrote to the church. But James here in this reading puts his finger on the related problems of jealousy and selfish ambition. Jealousy and selfish ambition. Now, I say they're related 
for they are both grounded in a fearful egotism. You know, I think you could argue very persuasively that the real root of sin is fear. You know, pride certainly has a role to play, but pride is grounded in a fear. Because I'm afraid of losing my position, I'm afraid of losing the elevated status of my ego, what happens then? I'm deeply concerned about any move that you might make to get ahead of me. All right, there's where jealousy comes from. How, why are we jealous of people? It's, the more you think about it, how weird jealousy is, but gosh, we all wrestle with it. Here's someone that's accomplished something. They've done something good that's worthy of attention. But why, why do we resent that? I mean, why don't we just celebrate that or, or even, even be neutral about it, leave it alone? Well, see, it bugs us if we are beset by a fearful egotism. Because, see, if you're getting attention, you're getting advanced. It means I'm not getting attention. That means I'm not getting advanced. Turn this thing around, and you have what the Germans call Schadenfreude, right? Which is the joy that we take in someone's sorrow or someone's suffering. And I'll admit it, every fellow sinners, right? We all struggle with this. Sometimes a bad thing happens to a person, and we don't sympathize. We're not filled with, you know, compassion but rather with schadenfreude. And see, very often you're afraid to admit that. You won't admit it publicly, but deep down you're, you're kind of happy when that person had problems. How come? Well, it's the flip side of jealousy. It's like, hey, that's great. If you go down, then I go up. See, but all of that is spiritually skewed, all that spiritually off-kilter. All of it is a sign of our original sin. See, if all were well with us, we'd acknowledge everything that we have is a gift. Whatever anyone else has is a gift. It's all meant to give glory to God. And so if someone does well, rejoice in it. Someone fails, has trouble, well, your heart breaks for them. You sympathize with them. Schadenfreude, jealousy, ambition are all signs of our dysfunction. You know, ambition, of course, uh, same thing. If, if my ego is afraid, I'll resent your success. I'll also be spending a lot of my time trying to propel myself forward. You know, a lot of my time will be spent making myself better, trying to come to a higher position than you. See, notice what a waste of time all this is spiritually. And everyone, listen to me how it puts your happiness completely in the hands of other people. I want to spend a little time with that. It's a very important, I think, insight. If you're, if you're in, the, in the grip of ambition or jealousy, it means this fearful egotism, it means your happiness depends completely on other people. But if you let go of all this and you say, look, my joy is in God, well, then you can live in a certain way independently of the attitudes of others. You are much more in command of your own happiness. Think of the great saints who found joy even when they were going through extremely difficult times, even when people hated them or reviled them. See, that's possible if you've stopped playing the game of jealousy and ambition. Okay, now with all this in mind, these descriptions of original sin, what's the matter with us, how we get off kilter, take a quick look now at the gospel. 
this wonderful uh, passage from the Gospel of Mark, which begins almost with a joke, because Jesus has just clarified that the Son of Man must suffer and be handed over to men who will kill him. Right? That's the message. And the disciples blithely wonder which of them is the greatest. I mean, what's funny is, were these people listening at all to what he was saying? But see, this is true up and down the Christian centuries, both in the church and in the wider society. What does it mean on Christian terms to be a success? Well, we still think somehow it means to get ahead and to be full of pride and to be better than others and all this worldly business, when in fact it means to walk the humble path of discipleship behind Jesus, who always moves toward the cross. That's what it means to be a success. That's what it means now to be walking correctly. See how weird and and counterintuitive this all is. Which is why, after Jesus corrects them, he places a little child in their midst. And don't you love that image? For some reason, it always haunts my imagination. The Lord himself putting his arms around this little kid. See, but we have to catch, though, why this would have been so shocking in the society of the time, because at that time and place, a child was nothing. A child was utterly without power or significance. See, we tend to get a little bit romantic uh, in our thinking about children, but uh, for them, the child meant someone that was utterly powerless. It was a commonplace to put some great figure, to put a, a teacher or a political leader or military commander in the center of attention. What Jesus does, remarkably, is he puts a child in the center of attention. In this beautiful gesture, he shows us, it seems to me, the wonderfully upside-down world we're meant to inhabit. The world that represents the overturning of original sin. Give yourself over to Jesus. Become like the child whom he singles out, and you'll move now in the right direction. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.